Well, good morning, everybody. I want to say hello to all of you, especially those of you worshiping with us at our other campuses. Uh, a little interesting fact about our church, if you were new here, is that on the weekend of the Duke-UNC game, the services we have before the game, there are an unusually large number of Duke and UNC fans there seeking the favor of God. And then after the game, there is a lot of the fans from the team that won present in the service and the others at home protesting. Uh, and I'm sure there is some bad theology, really bad theology mixed in there somewhere, but uh, that's just our church. So if you're new here, uh, I am convinced that had the, had the Apostle Paul lived today, uh, when he talked about the, the great divisions being overcome in the church, he would not have selected Jew and Gentile. He would have suggested Tar Heel and Blue Devil. Uh, so we come together uh, this morning, not around a sports team, but we come together around, around Jesus. I um, got one quick announcement before we get started here, and that is um, there is a time for everything in the life of a church. And we are entering into a time here in the next month where we're going to devote ourselves and call, come together in a special season of prayer. And uh, this Wednesday, 6.30, at all of our campuses, each campus is going to have a prayer meeting. And I just really need you to be there. Um, just, to, just to be totally frank with you, I need you to be there. I need you to, if you are a part of this church, we're going to come together and we're just going to ask God to do some things in our church body, in our community, and in our families. Uh, and I want you to be a part of that, and of course, in unreached people groups around the world. So I want you to, to make that a priority and be there this Wednesday. We are beginning a new series this morning, this weekend. Uh, many of you are, are already a little bit ahead of me, which is great uh, by means of this study guide that we have uh, provided for you. Um, if not, I would encourage you to pick up a copy this morning. It is written um, two purposes. One is small groups use it uh, to study along with me, but also for you um, just to be able to, in your personal devotional time, be reading some of the same passages I'm going to be teaching from. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to get it. Even if you're not in a small group, it'd be a great way to, to stay connected and to get more out of what we're talking about. All right, Luke is, in many ways, a gospel that is written for skeptics. And so we're calling it Kingdom Come because what Luke is showing you is how the kingdom of Jesus, when it actually came to earth was something that was totally different and unexpected than what anybody suspected that it would be, which is why many people ended up rejecting it because it was not at all what they thought that they were looking for. But the secular and the religious establishments rejected Jesus. Uh, one of the few times they ever came to agree on anything, and that is they both of them thought Jesus is not the guy we're looking for. The religious people, the religious establishment said, no, this is not the what we've been hoping for. And the, the secular government said, this is not the one who's going to answer all the world's problems and bring, bring an end to all the, the things that we're dealing with. And so they rejected him. In fact, Luke is going to end his gospel showing you that Jesus' execution was a joint project of both the secular and religious establishments. And that's because Jesus' kingdom was, in many ways, inexplicable. But Luke also shows you that the kingdom of Jesus was, if your eyes and your heart were open at least, undeniable. Undeniable. And what you're going to learn throughout this series is that faith, real faith, genuine faith, is when the inexplicable meets the undeniable. When the inexplicable meets the undeniable, that's where faith comes from. Um, I realize that I'm talking to a lot of people who have struggled with different kinds of doubt. And I want you to know that doubt is not a bad thing. In fact, doubt, I would say most often, is a good thing. The way I've often described it to you is that doubt is like a foot poised. A foot poised to go forwards or backwards. Yes, you can pick that foot up in doubt and go backwards into unbelief, but you can also never really take a step until you pick that foot up. And what you're going to see is that there are a lot of things in your life that are inexplicable, 
and how Jesus answered those in the undeniable, okay? This is going to be a lot of fun, so, so let's get started. We're going to see right off the bat, Luke present the gospel to two different kinds of skeptics. The first kind that we're going to look at this weekend is the person whose skepticism arises from the fact that they've been really disappointed in life. Life has damaged them in a way that they don't know how they could believe in the idea of a good God who has unwavering intentions for good in their life in light of how their life has turned out. Now in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the kind of doubter whose doubts arise from intellectual problems that they have with Christianity. All right, that'll be in a couple of weeks, but where we start is with the kind of person who, who deals with doubt because of disappointment in life. Some of you are right there. You have a problem believing in God because of pain, because of disappointment, unanswered questions, unanswered prayer in your life. I deal as a pastor all the time with people like this. In fact, I would say that of the different kinds of doubt, this is the greater kind. This is the kind more people struggle with. It's not like they read a book by Richard Dawkins and that made them question their faith. It's that they're just looking at their life. And they're like, how could I believe in a God whose intentions are good for me all the time? At least you say they are. And how could life have turned out like this for me? Because I get to see things that I don't understand if there is a God and he really cares about me, why my life would look like, like this. The very first story in Luke, very first one, is about a couple of people who are brokenhearted because they have always wanted to have kids. That's all they've wanted, and they've never been able to do it. And now they're old, really old, and it looks like they've totally missed out on this blessing. And you're going to see how the birth of Jesus speaks into that pain. By the way, this is not Jesus' parents that I'm talking about. This is going to be a couple who give birth to a baby. You'll see at the end of the story about the same time as Jesus' birth, but it's not Jesus' parents, all right? So let's jump right into it. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, I want you to take it out. And I want you to open it to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 5. Now, if you don't have your Bible, I'm going to put it on the screen below me um, or uh, you know, above me or whatever, um, and you're allowed to look at it if you promise that next week you'll bring your Bible. If you're not going to bring your Bible next week, I just need you to look at the person in front of you with their back and keep your eyes lowered in shame because you're not going to bring your Bible, okay? All right, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Here we go. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he, Zechariah, had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both of them were advanced in years. Barrenness. They had no kids. It was hardly anything worse for a couple or for a family in Israel during that time. Because see, to have kids meant that you had someone to take care of you in the future. I understand that it's really bad today when a couple wants to have kids. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But in those days, there were some other ramifications to being childless. Because you didn't have somebody to take care of you in your old age. They didn't have 401ks and retirement plans the way that we, we did. Their retirement plan was to have lots of kids. One of them would get wealthy and take care of you. So when you don't have kids, that means when you get old, there's nobody that's going to look after you. In addition to that, the way that Israel understood the promises of God is that God had given them an inheritance in Israel. And that the way that their family would keep part in that inheritance was you'd have kids and and, and the inheritance would be handed down to the generations of your family. And if you don't have kids, then you're losing your inheritance stake in God's kingdom. And so this is more than just they're lonely. 
This is, is their hopes for the future are gone. For years they'd hoped for a son. But year after year they'd cycled through hope and disappointment. Elizabeth would wake up one morning and she'd feel a little dizzy, a little nauseous, and she'd think, this is it, this is it. Only to have a couple weeks later her hopes dashed again. She would go through these cycles of, 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 of hope and disappointment and, and, and despair. And I know that, that, that many of you have gone through the same thing. You know, and, and I read, in fact, I read an article this week by a lady who was writing, having experienced this, and she said, I, you know, as a believer, I, I kept looking for how God was going to do it. She said, my father died. When my father died, I, I, I woke up the next morning after he died, and I felt nauseous, and I thought, that's it. That's it. God, having taken this man out of my life, is now going to replace new life in me. And, and she said, I was so excited, and only to have a couple weeks later realize that it was another false, another false hope. Maybe there were a couple of miscarriages involved. The point is, after years of, of hope and disappointment, they've resolved themselves to the fact that they're never going to be able to have children. And they've got to put up with the patronizing questions and all the pop advice that people give. You're like, oh, you know, well, we couldn't have kids and we started to adopt. And then we immediately got pregnant. And they're like, great, you know, is that what we're supposed to do? And, and just these, I mean, some of you know exactly the cycle that I'm talking about. By this point, though, a kind of permanent disappointment has set in on them. The one thing that they wanted in life was not going to be theirs. Plus, they had all these questions that people asked about them. You know, because in that day, the surest sign they thought of God's blessing was that you would have kids. So people were like, oh yeah, Zachariah and Elizabeth, I wonder what's wrong with them. I wonder why God is displeased with them. I wonder what it is that we don't know about Zachariah and Elizabeth. Let me ask you this. Do you have something in your life like this? Something that you can't understand why God hasn't given it to you? Maybe it's this issue. Maybe you're like, God, why? Why don't I have kids? Why don't we have kids? But what do we do wrong? Why is it that other people seem to be able to have no problem with this? Why not us? God, why am I not married? I mean, God, what's wrong with me? How come I'm watching other people that I grew up with get married and, and and how come i'm not married god why have i been overlooked for promotion why are people who have lesser abilities than me why they've gone a lot farther than i have god how come my family and i never can seem to round the corner financially i mean looking at other people that i graduated with from college and look how they're going way beyond where i am god why why haven't we been able to do that what's wrong with us god why are my kids not normal right I'm not saying this personally. I'm just saying, I mean, some of you, I'm not trying to minimize your pain if this is you. <laughs> Why are my kids not? How come my kids are the one in trouble? How come my kids are walking away from the faith? What do we do wrong, God? And do you feel the sting of what other people say about you sometimes? Or what you think they're saying? Now, I have a friend who was single for a long time. And he told me that as he got older, he was aware that people would ask. Sometimes they would do it directly. So what's wrong with you? And why can't you get married? He knew that for every one person that said that to his face, there were 10 people saying, saying it behind his back. Oh, he's not single for a, a season. He's single for a reason. You know, I mean, statements like that. Another one of my friends said he got so sick of the patronizing statements that people would make to him. He said he'd be at weddings at his church and little old ladies would come up to him and say so condescendingly, they'd be, oh, bless your heart, which is Southern for you poor little idiot, right? <laughs> bless your heart. Don't worry, honey, you're next. He said he got so tired of it that he would go up to those same little old ladies at funerals and say, don't worry, honey, you're next, you're next. 
totally kidding about that. But, uh, but you, you understand, the point is, there's all these questions that were going around. But you see, the Bible is very careful to know this, this was not a curse. Do you see that? They were righteous. They walked blamelessly before the Lord. That didn't mean that they were sinless. Just that they had not done anything that singled them out for God's judgments. But I'm sure there were still a lot of times that Zachariah and Elizabeth asked themselves, God, what did we do wrong? God, what did we do wrong? What's wrong with us? Verse 8. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Let me explain this real quick. There were thousands of priests in Israel. And so they had different divisions of them that would cycle through and they would take care of the stuff going on in the temple for you know, a month or so. And during that time, there was one of them that would be selected to go in into the very holy of holies and offer incense before God. Only one. And so they would choose that by the casting of dice. Well, this die cast falls on Zechariah. He's the one that's chosen out of his division. Y'all, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Verse 11. And there appeared to him, while he was in the holy of holies, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I can't resist here. Real quick. All right, just give me a second on this. One of the things I want you to notice in, in Luke's storytelling is the amount of random details that he just throws in. Like the fact that the angel is standing on the right side of the altar of incense, that has nothing to do with the plot. The reason that's in there is because Luke is writing eyewitness accounts. He either talked to Zechariah and got this from him directly or talked to somebody who had heard it from Zechariah. Okay? So, and, and that's going to be really important in a few weeks when I show you how Luke presents the reasons to believe in Jesus. But I just want you to notice it right there and then we've got to move on. Okay? Verse, 13, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw that angel. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. I love little scenes like this one where it shows you what angels are really like. 70% of Americans say they believe in angels. And 32%, a third of you, say that you have experienced one. A third of this audience will say in some way they've experienced an angel. The common picture of angel sightings is pretty tame. My kids' books usually have them something like little fat Pillsbury Doughboys with wings on them. Um, Life magazine a few years ago did this big survey to find out what the 32% who say they saw an angel, what it was like. And the answers in this article range from the spooky to the bizarre. You've got, of course, the standard messages from the underworld. But then you've got people who claim angels show up to give them directions when they're lost. Several who say that angels help them find a parking space. Which, if that's true, that's got to be the worst possible assignment for an angel. He <laughs> was like, oh, God. Parking for Joel Osteen. Again, are you kidding me, all right? One lady in the article that claimed that an angel helped her make a chicken casserole. And another lady who said an angel helped her lose weight. She even wrote a book about it called The Angel's Little Diet Book. I kid you not. Now, I won't comment on whether those things are true. All right, probably not. But I, I won't comment on that. But just know this, that when somebody sees an angel in the Bible, the response is always to be absolutely terrified. The angel's first response is always, no, 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 it's okay, don't die, don't die. It's not usually, I think you need a dash of cumin in that casserole. That's not normally what's said, okay? Verse 13, the angel says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John and he will, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. 
He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. People prepared for what? The birth of another baby. This guy's going to lead to a national repentance, and he's going to prepare the way for the birth of an even greater child, the Messiah. Verse 18, and Zacharias said to the angels, said to the angel, excuse me, how shall I know this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I, I love his phrasing here. He says that he's old, but his wife is advanced in years. In Hebrew, advanced in years is a much stronger phrase than simply old. Zachariah is like, I'm old, but my wife is old. I mean, she is old. Her birth certificate says expired on it, you know? When she sneezes, dust comes out. If you told her to act her age, she'd die, okay? I mean, my wife is old. She's old, okay? I mean, folks, when the Bible says you're old, you're old. You're old. She, the point is, she's not fertile myrtle anymore. So Zachariah's like, I don't believe you. In fact, you've got to hear the tone in his words. I don't believe you. I don't believe you because year after year we prayed and asked God for this. And there was no answer. And now you're telling me that when I'm old and about to die, that me and my geriatric wife are going to have a baby? Where were you when we were 30? Where were you when we were 40, 50? Now we're 80 and you're telling me that we're going to have a baby? And the angel answered in verse 19, I am Gabriel. Oh, that's a bad statement right there. That's like the I am Jason Bourne line, like times a thousand right there. I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. The angel's like, really, Zachariah, really? Just a minute ago, you were in the corner wetting your pants, and now you're all like, are you sure this can happen? So verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This was the first massive time out in the Bible, Okay. The angel's like, go to your room, no TV, no cell phones. I just want you to sit and think about what you've done. For nine months, he cannot hear, he cannot speak. Now, real quick, you might be like, well, how do you know he can't hear? Because I see where it says he can't speak. All right, well, if you jump down to verse 62, it says that whenever they wanted to talk to Zechariah, they made motions to him with their hands. You don't do that for people that can hear. Because if you do, it's really annoying. You know, you're like, do you want to eat? You know, and they're like, I can hear. Right, so they're making motions to him, which means that he cannot hear and he cannot speak. All right, now, the angel says, nine months, you're going to go to your room, which is going to be everywhere that you go from now on, you're going to be in your room, quiet, and can't talk, and think about how dumb you are, no pun intended, okay? Now, before you write off Zachariah as a stubborn old fool, I want you to try to relate to him for a minute. Zechariah has a deep, deep wound. The angel did not simply show up and say, tomorrow it's going to rain, Zechariah. Uh-uh. That's, that's not what's being said here. The angel speaks to him about hope in an area where Zechariah and his wife had only experienced pain and disappointment. Zechariah's refusal to believe is arising out of a deep and bitter past hurt. He's got a heart full of doubt that God is capable or able because of his disappointment in the past. Zechariah thinks his bitter past trumps the promises and the power of the sovereign God. You ever do that? 
Do you ever do that? God, there's no way that you could be in control of the situation. I know what your word says, but there is no way you could really be in control of the situation and it be turning out the way that it is. God, you've forgotten about me. God, there is no way that you could have a plan of goodness and blessing for me because you know I've done this and this in my past and I know what you're talking about using me for good, but I've just got way too much baggage to be able to ever be used for good. God, I don't have the capability to do what I feel like you're telling me to do. God, this has been a habit for so long that there's no way that I can shake it. I know that you'll say we'll be more than conquerors. And I know that you say that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. But I can't. There's no way. I give up. And the pain of your past trumps for you the promises of God. God shut up Zechariah in time out to teach him to trust his love and his character. What God did to Zechariah was discipline, yes, but it was love. You see, because there's a difference, a big difference, and this is really important. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is when God pays you back for your sin. Discipline is when God gets out a surgical knife and corrects things in you for your good. Would you want a man with a knife sticking it into your chest? It depends on what his intentions are. If this is a guy that's trying to murder you, then no, you don't want the knife in your chest. But if this is a doctor who is skilled, who is performing life-saving open-heart surgery on you, then yes, you want that knife going into your chest. When God disciplines you, if you are a believer in Jesus, he is not doing so with a knife of judgment. You want to know why? Because every bit of the judgment for your sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And because Jesus took your full penalty in your place, there's not a drop of that penalty that's reserved for you. And if God paid you back at all for your sin, then he would be exacting two punishments for the same sin, and that would be unjust, and God is not unjust. So now, because God has poured out on Jesus the punishment for your sin, when he works on you, he does so with discipline. Jesus took the knife of judgment so you could get the scalpel of healing. Okay? That's why there's a big difference in punishment and discipline, and what's going on here is love. It is discipline. As God is going to correct something in Zechariah, you're going to see how that plays out here in a minute. Verse 24. And these days, excuse me, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Now, just to be totally frank with you, I feel like if I were a woman who was 75 years old and I was pregnant, I'd probably keep myself hidden for the first five months too. Because, you know, in those first five months of pregnancy, it's like the, the girl usually, at least this is our experience, is like, you know, I just feel like the first five months people can't tell if I'm pregnant or if I'm just gaining a little weight and I don't really want to, you know, go out and have all the questions. When you're 75 years old, they never assume you're pregnant, right? They always assume this woman is going to the Bob Evans just a little too much and, you know, she's in the buffet lines and so she didn't want to be seen, right? But during these five months, Elizabeth keeps saying over and over again to herself and anybody that'll listen, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my, my reproach among people. That word reproach is really important. And we'll come back to it in a minute. But this is what Elizabeth was saying during her pregnancy. What Zechariah was saying was, of course, nothing. Okay? Jump down to verse 57. Verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Right? And they would have called him Zechariah after his father but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, but none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. 
And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. It looks like our old boys learned something in nine months, hadn't we? Yeah, he's not like, oh, yeah, call him John. I like John. John's a strong name. He's like, no, call him John. Quick, before God kills me. Call him John. And they all wondered. See that? Verse 63. They all wondered, and immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. Pent-up worship explodes out of Zachariah's mouth. For nine months, he has sat there, and he has watched in silence, all the while getting excited, all the while learning to believe the gospel. And when John is born, this old man sings and dances and spins around and starts freestyle rapping. And you can read it right there. He can read his rhyme in verses 68 through 79. And you can read that later. Here's the point I'm trying to make to you. Listen, the purpose of God's discipline in your life is that you overflow with joy and happiness in God in a way that makes you burst out in praise. Some of you have never really been able to worship. At least you've never been able to really worship with your heart. And God puts you through discipline because he wants you to be able to have joy in him. Some of you have been disciplined. Some of you are being disciplined right now. And what I want you to know is that he is doing it in love. He is doing it because he wants you to learn to love and trust him. I know that it feels painful. I know that sometimes you feel like God is trying to destroy you. But his intentions are not your destruction. His intentions are your healing. Y'all, the older I get, the more I believe in this, in the depths of my soul. God's love and tenderness is seen in his discipline of us. The wrath of God, the wrath of God is when God does nothing about your sin and allows you to keep walking in it. The love of God pours itself out in your life when God says, no, no more. You are not going to harden your heart to me any longer. You are not going to walk in selfishness. You are not going to give away your soul to idols in place of me and experience the despair and the anxiety and the loneliness that results from walking apart from me. So I'm going to put you through surgery and surgery hurts but I do it because I care about you. God's love is demonstrated in his discipline in your life. And some of you need to understand that, that what you're going through right now is his love towards you and not resistance, but to learn from it. I was talking about this with our campus pastors. Every week I always walk through the message with the the campus pastors and they give me feedback. And one of our campus pastors, Andrew Hopper, who played, um, he played football in college. He said, you know, this reminds me when I was, you know, in athletics in high school and college that whenever the coach was yelling at you, that's actually a really good sign. He said, because if the coach sees potential in you, those are the players he yells at. If the coach is totally ignoring you, that means he sees no potential in you and doesn't care about you at all. So the harder the coach is on you, the more that he cares about you. When he said that, another one of our campus pastors, Danny Franks, said... That explains so much of my athletic career right there. Because I would say, Coach, how am I doing? You know, and Coach would be like, fine. Franks, is that your name? Good. Coach, what do I do on this play? Go long. Just go long. Go stand out there for a while. And then come back and we'll give you a snow cone. You know, you're doing doing fine. Right? If If God cares about you, if God has something for you, then he puts you through discipline. Discipline is not God taking your joy away. In fact, it's God taking away from you the things that ultimately will kill you and will keep you from real joy. 
That's why you need to pay attention. C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, which is volume six in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's, so the characters are on a mission that Aslan has sent them on. And in the middle of this mission, they get around this witch, who obviously is the enemy, and she lights a fire that is an enchanted fire that when they smell the smoke of that fire, it causes them to fall under enchantment and to forget who Aslan is, who represents Jesus, and to forget the mission they're on and to doubt that what they've seen and experienced is really real, right? And so they're falling under this enchantment. Well, there's a little sidekick that's gone along with them who's called a marsh wiggle. I don't have time to explain what that is, but it's like an elf with big feet. Um, and this marsh wiggle is their faithful sidekick. His name is Puddleglum. And when he sees that they've fallen under the enchantment and they no longer believe in Aslan and they're losing their focus, he goes over to this fire and with his bare feet, he stomps on this fire and puts out that fire, but it burns his feet very, very badly. And, but the smell of his burning feet wakes up these characters, these children who are on this mission because C.S. Lewis's quote is, there is nothing enchanting about the smell of burnt marsh wiggle. And what C.S. Lewis was trying to show is that sometimes God burns your flesh to wake you up. Burning flesh wakes you up from the enchantment of sin. That's what some of you are going through. You're under the witch's spell and your flesh is burning. And the message that you're here this weekend to hear is just me to tell you, wake up. That's what God is doing. Now, others of you, you, you're under the witch's spell, but your flesh isn't burning yet. And you're like, what does that mean? It means that you got a chance to wake up before your flesh burns. I'm telling you, if you will wake up before your flesh starts burning, it would make for a much less painful life. It really would. Take it from a guy who has experience in this. It would make up for a much less painful life if you would wake up according to the word of God and not wait for the discipline of God. You see, tucked... Watch this. Tucked into the middle of this story is another story. About, did you notice that? We jumped from verse 26 all the way down to verse 57. What went on between those? There's another little story tucked in there about another angel who appeared to another person with a message of an unexpected and in many ways even more unbelievable pregnancy. That person's name was Mary. Verse 26, take a look. In the sixth month that Elizabeth was pregnant, the angel Gabriel was sent from, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And that virgin's name was Mary. The angel appeared to her and of course, like I explained, she's absolutely terrified. So the angel says to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, now watch this. And Mary says back to the angel, Well, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. I, I know how this works. I don't have a husband. I've never had sex. I know that you can't get pregnant without one of those things. This sounds a lot like Zachariah's question, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like Zachariah's question? The words are the same, but the heart behind them is totally different. Zachariah's question was asked in scorn and disbelief. Mary's question was asked in wonder and amazement. Verse 35, and so the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in 
her old age. Seriously, can the Bible never bring this woman up without pointing to you, out to you how old she is? I mean, even now, Elizabeth in heaven is going, seriously, every time I got to be the old chick? Every time? <laughs> Elizabeth, the old chick, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing's impossible. No natural inability keeps you from fulfilling God's promises. No sin is too great that it puts you beyond the reach of God's grace. No mistake in your past disqualifies you from God's good plans for you in the future. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now there's a phrase to live by, isn't it? Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. That, by the way, that's not a grit your teeth and surrender to Jesus kind of phrase. That is a dare I rearrange my life and dare I rearrange my outlook in light of God's promises to me. That's what that statement means. Do I really dare to rearrange my whole life and adjust my entire outlook in light of God's promises to me? What if you did that? What if you did that? What if you really believe Psalm 23, 6, that goodness and mercy followed you all the days of your life? What if you believe Isaiah 26, 2, that, that God will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed upon you? What if you believe Jeremiah 29, 11, that God knows the plans he has for you, plans to give you a future and a hope and a promise, not condemnation and judgment? What if you believe Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus and that God's intentions for you now are only good, only blessing, only prosperity? in the way that he understands prosperity. Romans 8, 28, that all things are working together for good in your life to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1, 9, that every single molecule in the universe he has under his sovereign control working for the plan that he has for you. What if you really believed that and rearranged your life around that and your entire outlook? Mary believed it. In fact, she says, bring that stuff on me, God. And the angel, verse 39, departed from her and mary could still talk you see when it comes to faith it's only pass fail that's a really important point y'all when it comes to faith it's only pass fail zachariah and mary both had questions but it's almost like getting on a plane if you get on a plane even if you have a lot of doubts and questions about how the plane flies if long as you're on it when it gets to where it's going you'll be there you could be an aeronautical engineer, a scientist, and understand flight, but if you don't get on that plane, you're not going to get to where it goes. Here's Zechariah the priest, who should know better, asking questions of unbelief and doesn't get on the plane. Then here's Mary, the teenager, the unwed teenager. She gets on the plane, and she gets to where she's supposed to go. You see, when it comes to faith, it's only pass, fail. Zechariah failed, Mary passed. Both of them had supernatural babies. But Mary got to talk to people about how awesome it was a whole lot sooner than Zachariah did. Here's what I want from you in a nutshell. I want you to learn to trust in the goodness of God. Y'all, that is the key to doing anything for God. That's what will give you the ability to surrender to him. That's what will give you the ability to trust him with your problems. That's what, knowing the goodness of God is what will give you the ability to pray bold, audacious things for your marriage and your children and your family and for your coworkers and for unreached people groups around the world. Yes, God, you'll say with Mary. Yes, it sounds impossible to me, 
And in fact, it sounds like it even may cause me some problems, like Mary. The idea of being an unwed mother as a teenager and have a kid doesn't sound like it's going to be easy. But God, I trust you. You're good. And there's nothing better than what you would declare over me and nothing I would rather have than your intentions for me, be it unto me according to your word. What I wish I could convince some of you of is the love of God for you. That even when he breaks your bones and shuts you up in silence, it's because he desires your salvation, not your destruction. And I wish that you would realize that the love of God flows over you right now like a father gushes over a child. And that you would just resign yourself completely to him and cast yourself fully upon him. The love of God is the most amazing humbling force in the universe. That's a conviction that grows in me the older I get. The most humbling, amazing, awesome force in the universe is not the power of God, is not the wrath of God. The most amazing, humbling force in all the universe is the love of God, the never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love of God for his people. That's what I wish I could convince you of, is to trust the love and goodness of God. So let me close by, by explaining this to you. You know when I say close, I don't mean like two minutes, I mean like seven, so hang with me. Let me close by explaining this. There's a meaning here, you see, that beyond just that God can give children to people who sometimes think there's no more chance. There's a meaning here beyond just that God can give children to people who sometimes think there's no more chance. You see, listen, barrenness was a sign of ultimate desolation in Jewish culture. Like I explained to you, children were their primary source of joy and security. Children meant you had prospects for the future. Children meant you had honor. Children meant that you were going to be taken care of. So when you didn't have children, it meant that you had been robbed of your primary source of joy and security. Your issue may not be children. It might be. But your issue may be something besides that. Maybe something else in life has let you down. Maybe your career hasn't turned out like you had hoped it would. Maybe you've never gotten the success you thought you deserved. Maybe you're still single. And you always thought that you would be married by this point. Or maybe you're married and you feel like your marriage just lets you down. You're like, God, how come? I mean, I'm doing everything I, I thought I was supposed to be doing. I mean, I'm trying to be the, the spouse that I'm supposed to be. How come my wife, how come my husband doesn't get it? Why is my marriage like this? What did I do wrong? Maybe you're sick, chronically sick, and you just can't get healthy. Listen, there are many ways to be barren. There are many ways to be barren. And the point of this story, listen, is not that God will give you that thing. In fact, in many ways, Zechariah never got the enjoyment out of the thing he hoped for, did he? He probably died when John was a boy. He never got to see John grow up. He never got to see his grandkids. John the Baptist probably never took care of him in his old age. The point is not that the birth of John the Baptist took away their soul's barrenness. No. There was another baby who was in the process of being born to somebody else who would do that. This story, you see, is part of the birth narrative of the Messiah. Ultimately, it is he, Jesus, that was the answer to our soul's barrenness. You see, the reasons our hearts are not happy are not because we don't have children or romance or money or success. It's because we're separated from God. Jesus' primary mission was to restore us to God. And that's what takes away our real barrenness. The Messiah that was to be born to Mary would take away our sin and our condemnation by dying 
for it in our place and removing our separation from God. He would make it so that we could know God again. And God is such a treasure, you see, that when you have him, you can deal with the disappointment of childlessness or poor health or a terrible marriage or bad health or singleness when you don't want it. Now, it's not that he doesn't also often give good gifts like children or success or marriage, just that the best gifts that he gives, the ones that really take away sadness and despair and fill your life with true joy and real security, is not any of those things. The best gift is God himself. You see, the prosperity gospel, which is the, the whole, you know, guys on TV naming it and claiming it and all that kind of stuff, the prosperity gospel is right in that it recognizes God wants to give you good things. But it is wrong in what it defines those best things to be. The best gifts of God are not BMWs or houses or even marriage or children. The best gifts is God himself, his presence. So don't confuse God's lesser gifts with his ultimate ones. Sometimes God gives you a kiss, as maybe a metaphor I'll use, a token of his favor. I mean, I look at my life, and I look at my marriage, and I look at my children, and I look at the blessings that God has poured out of me, and I recognize those as the goodness of God to me, but they're just signs of his favor. The real gift, the ultimate blessing, and the final proof, and the ultimate answer to my barrenness was the gift of himself purchased for me by Christ. So enjoy the signs of God's gift. Ask for them, but find your refuge in God himself. Where do you feel barren? Where do you feel barren this morning? You know, there's always something. You don't have a boyfriend. Your marriage is bad. You don't have success. You don't have children. Your family's falling apart. Where do you feel barren? I, I, I've confessed to you numerous times that my soul's barrenness, I often tried to fight with success, which has worked sometimes. You know, I'd achieve a little bit of success, and I'd feel like I was on top of life, but anything that you choose down here to answer your soul's barrenness always lets you down, because no matter how successful you are, there's always somebody more successful, and there's always something you feel like you should be getting that you're not getting, you're getting overlooked, you're always frustrated at some failure, see? Whatever you choose down here to deal with your barrenness, whether it's success, marriage, kids, anything, is going to leave you barren. I've heard it said like this, listen. All of us eventually face some disappointment in life. We all do. And when that happens, we'll do one of four things. I get these from Tim Keller. Listen to this. Number one, first thing we'll do, blame the thing itself. We'll focus our attention on that thing and we'll start to blame it. It let you down, so you, leave, you need something else. So your boyfriend breaks your heart, lets you down. What do you do? You trade him in for a new one. And he says some kind of nonsense about, oh, baby, you and I are special. We're going to make it forever. We're soulmates cut out of the same cloth in the universe. He's lying. He probably knows he's lying, but he's definitely lying. You turn to another version of the same thing to answer your soul's barrenness. It lets you down, too. Some of you are in marriages right now, and, and it wasn't working out for you, so you got to do a new marriage thinking that would take care of it. And it doesn't. Some of you gave up on the idea of marriage altogether. You, you may have stayed in your marriage, but you just kind of emotionally turned yourself off. And some of you men buried yourself in your work because you thought, man, if I could just be successful, then my soul wouldn't feel so barren. 
Life disappoints you, so you make an idol out of your family. Right? So you become obsessive and possessive and always complaining that your children are letting you down. Because you're blaming all these things in life, and now you're going to turn to your, your kids. Your job is frustrating you, so you turn to the refuge of alcohol, drugs, pornography. You blame the thing itself, and you find a new thing. Here's the second option. You blame yourself. You think something's wrong with you. You hear those voices, and you believe them. The problem is, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. That's why I'm miserable. People who live this way develop guilt complexes. They become depressed. They think something's wrong with me. I can't do anything right. I'm unlovable. That's your second option. Blame yourself. Third option. Blame the world. Well, there's just no happiness in the world. Life is a tale told by idiots. There's no happiness. And so you become cynical. You get a job teaching at one of our local universities. <laughs> and you get older. You just become a bitter old person. There's a lot of sad bitter old people you want to know why because they just went through the list everything let them down and now in their old age they're expecting their kids to do it and the kids aren't doing it so they're just mad because they don't have anything left and they go to their grave in bitterness having been disappointed by the whole world here's your fourth option realize that you were created for another world for god see when you realize that when you realize you were created for God, then the birth of a baby who would bear your sin and your judgment and the things that separated you from God and who had the ability to reconcile you to God becomes very, very relevant. People are always saying to me, like, I want my pastor to be relevant. I want him to say things that apply to my life. Like you want four tips on good communication in your marriage or three ways to get along with your dog or some kind of something. And as if this wasn't relevant. Because you're, listen, because your soul was created for God, there is nothing on earth more relevant to you than the birth of Jesus. And learning five steps to good communication will not do nearly as much for your deep soul needs as embracing the billion steps that he took to you when he came to earth as Christ and died for your sin. And so this Messiah's birth is not just a religious event in history. It is the answer to your whole life struggle. It and it alone takes away your soul's barrenness. So this is how Luke begins. He starts with people who are barren. And he says the birth of Messiah is going to be the answer to that barrenness. Do you know him? Do you know him? Has your soul found its refuge in him? At all of our campuses, if we would, let's bow our heads. Do you know him? Knowing him is what we call repentance and belief. Repentance means you acknowledge that he's the Lord and that he will be in charge, not you. Belief means you understand that he came to earth to bear your sin debt and to reconcile you to God. It's a gift that he offers to all who will repent and believe. Every week I tell you that if you've never repented and believed, you have a chance. It's not a special ceremony. You don't have to walk forward. You don't have to do anything that a lot of people tell you you're supposed to do. It's simply an attitude of the heart where you repent and you believe. If you've never done that, I'd invite you to do it right now. Maybe you could come talk to one of us after the service is over at, at any of our locations. The campus pastor would be happy to talk to you. We have prayer counselors that are down front at the end of our service every week. We'd love to talk to you. Some of our worship team would be happy to, to talk with you. Maybe that friend that brought you today could talk to you.
Father, I pray that we would be people who would understand that our souls were created for you and that the Messiah is the answer to our soul's barrenness. Help us to worship and to know the gospel. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.